you would give us open hearts and ears to hear and to heed your word. Help us not to merely be listeners, but to be doers of your word. Father, I thank you for these, your people that are here. I marvel at the work of grace on display in their lives that you have caused them, indeed all of us, to know you, to know your word, to trust in Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here whose faith is weak, those who feel discouraged. Lord, I pray they'd be strengthened today by your word and would walk more faithfully with more confidence because of what we do here today. So, Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have heard of the humble brag? You guys familiar with this terminology? Don't worry, I'm not about to do that. But um, for those of you who may not know what a humble brag is, it's a simple definition is humble bragging is when you boast about yourself, but you try to mask it in some kind of a complaint or some other kind of expression of false humility. It's really common on social media for people to humble brag. They want to make much of themselves and they figure out some kind of way to, to do that, but in a roundabout way. So you'll, you'll see this all the time on Twitter or Facebook, this kind of a thing. So much so that some years ago, Tim Challies wrote an article on mastering the art of the humble brag. And what he does in this one article is he gives to readers basically tips, tools that they need to brag about themselves while disguising it as humility. Now, he's doing this tongue-in-cheek. He's doing this ironically. He thinks this practice is bad, but he's saying, okay, this is, this is how it's done. And so he, he gives a list of specific techniques to employ for effective humble bragging. I'm going to read to you uh, some of what he put in his list. He says, one thing that you can do to humble brag is to tell other people what you own. So the humble brag is a great way to subtly tell people about your cherished possessions while at the same time dropping hints about your excellent financial situation. So somebody might say this, when I bought this Ferrari, no one warned me that I'd get pulled over all the time, you know? And so uh, you're, you're really just trying to tell everybody you have a Ferrari, but you're acting like, oh, I can't believe I, got, I get pulled over. Or you can, uh, a second thing, you can brag about your opportunities. Somebody might write this. They would say, boy, my fingers are aching after working on my memoir all day. <laughs> or here's a, a really common one. Uh, you can make sure that people know who you know. You can always elevate yourself in other people's eyes by cashing in on some friendship you have or even with just relationships you have with people who are more famous than yourself. So you can... You can uh, write things like, you know, I bumped into my dear friend Tom Hanks at the Academy Awards. He sure is awesome. Or you can remind people that you're popular. You can use the humble brag to tell people about um, how much people like you. So here's an example. 
preached the worst sermon of my life, but I still got a sore hand from signing all those Bibles afterward. <laughs> Tim Jolly says that once you've mastered those, you can move on to more advanced techniques. And those would include, you can hide it in a question. Is anyone else going to be at the White House tonight? It sure would be great to meet up. Or you can, another advanced technique is to blame it on Jesus. The best humble braggers know how to legitimize their boast by incorporating the divine. That way it's not really about you, it's about Jesus. So you can say something like, you know, I just got asked to perform at the Dove Awards. Go Jesus. <laughs> um, or you could, you could um, fake embarrassment or awkwardness. You're always humble when feeling awkward or embarrassed, right? So you can fake it and marvel others with your humility and say something like, Okay, that awkward moment when you ask Jim Gaffigan, who's a famous comedian, that awkward moment when you ask Jim and Gaffigan to sign a book and he asks you to sign yours. Then there's the grumble humble, and this one's really common. This is where you try to wrap up your brag in a grumble or a kind of a, a complaint. So you say something like, oh, I tried try shopping at Amazon today and they recommended my own book to me. Fail. So he's got all these lists of, uh, you know, ideas for how to construct your own humble brag. And what he's really done is he's just cataloging what he's read on social media. And he's telling you and exposing what people are really doing when they say these kinds of things. Now, these seem kind of ridiculous. We may even laugh at some of these. But the temptation to brag and to boast about ourselves is really powerful. Sometimes we can't help ourselves, even. We want to be noticed, honored, and made much of. And if people won't notice and honor or make much of us, then we'll do it ourselves. We may try to conceal it in a clever way, but we'll do it ourselves. And yet we know better than this, don't we? We know what the Bible says about this, what the Bible says about pride, what it says about boasting. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, but a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29.23, once pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Or even 1 Peter 5.5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We know what the Bible says about pride, yet it still so often has this strong, powerful hold on us, enough sometimes to move us crassly to boast about ourselves and our own achievements and possessions and qualities that we think are remarkable. C.S. Lewis, famously in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this about pride. He says, there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, 
And all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. End quote. Pride makes us do evil, stupid things. Boasting is merely pride put into words. It's the expression on our, in our mouths of the pride that is in our hearts. And that's why we so often fall into it. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verses 12 through 18. I noticed that we, in our scripture reading, we read through verse 17. That was my fault. For some reason, I wrote down 12 through 17. The sermon actually includes the last verse in the chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. So far in chapter 10, Paul has made the case against opponents in the congregation who have called his authority into question. You remember that from our last couple of messages. Paul has been arguing that in spite of appearances, he does in fact have the authority of an apostle, an authority that was given to him by Christ himself. And now in verses 12 through 18, he's going to show that his opponents are engaging in a good bit of boasting. Paul wants to inform the Corinthians and us what we should be thinking about that kind of boasting from the opponents that have come up there in Corinth. So he's going to show us three things. First of all, he's going to show us how the foolish boast in verse 12. Then he's going to show us how Paul boasts in verses 13 through 16. And then finally, how we should boast, verses 17 through 18. So how the foolish boast, verse 12. How Paul boasts, verses 13 to 16. And then how we should boast, verses 17 through 18. So everybody look at point number one, how the foolish boast, verse 12. Everybody look at verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Now, when Paul talks about those in the congregation, those who are commending themselves, he's referring directly to his opponents who are questioning his authority and who are leading God's people astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The bottom line is that these false teachers are commending themselves while denigrating Paul. They're communicating to the people not just false teaching, but they're questioning Paul's authority. They're putting Paul down in some sense. And so their scheme here is to undermine Paul's influence while promoting their own influence. They have accused him of having nerve in his letters, you remember, but then kind of being um, you know, without boldness when he's with them in, in present. One commentator, David Garland, says that Paul in this first phrase is using a little bit of sarcasm at the beginning of verse 12. So when Paul says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, you remember there, he, what he means by that is, you know, not that I dare to classify or compare myself with some of those who are commending themselves. And, and, and Garland says it's a little bit of sarcasm going on here, meaning, you know, I'm such a, a small dwarf as I could, couldn't possibly compare with such giants, these guys who are challenging me. 
Or maybe he means something like, I could hardly rank with such luminaries as these guys. I think there's probably something to that. And if, if Garland is right, Paul is putting down their boasting with a kind of mock self-deprecation of his own. And yet look at the pride of these opponents. Paul says at the latter part of verse 12, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. And you might even render it when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. It's kind of, kind of what the idea is. They're without understanding. So the truth is it was just very common in Paul's day for teachers in schools to practice comparison with other teachers. Uh, they would do this. Teachers could attract students and the fees that come with those students by comparing themselves to one another in this way. And I'm going to read to you an excerpt from uh, David Garland's commentary. He describes this. He says, quote, In this cutthroat competition for plaudits and pupils, one had to advertise oneself publicly with audacious praise while impugning the qualities of other contenders for honor, impugning other people, other teachers. People were constantly vying with others to attain elusive glory and engaged in a constant game of one-upsmanship. This hunger for honor encouraged outward expressions of pride and arrogance. Self-boasting was considered an act of honor. An individual's worth and consequently his respect in the community was dependent on his status that he was able to project. Boasting about one's status and achievements and comparing oneself favorably against others were routine tactics for those who aimed at gaining a following for themselves, end quote. So they would compare themselves with other teachers by amplifying their own perceived good qualities and comparing them to other people's bad qualities. Garland goes on. He says, such topics as a person's race, their upbringing, education, status, physique, pursuits, positions held, were all fair game in sizing up the relative merits in standing. Such extravagant self-regard was considered characteristic of sham philosophers who were frequently lampooned by the more serious philosophers. So the guys who were doing this, it was just plain to a lot of people that it, they were being ridiculously you know, self-congratulatory. And so the more serious teachers, the more serious philosophers, didn't take that seriously, and they would lampoon them. By implication, then, Paul lumps his opponents in with this crowd of frauds who can be identified with their extravagant self-regard and self-commendation, end quote. So Paul says that when these teachers do this, they're comparing themselves with themselves, they're behaving without understanding, which means they're behaving foolishly. And now these false teachers are doing the same thing in Corinth. They're behaving like these sham philosopher teachers who are just commending themselves and comparing themselves, you know, favorably with other people. They're comparing themselves with themselves, commending themselves, and then they're denigrating Paul. And Paul is saying that he's not going to get into any of that. He's not going to be participating in this sort of gauche, tacky behavior of comparing himself to them. They may behave like fools, but he's not going to join them in it because he doesn't want to, you know, behave like a fool. Last week, 
um, was the, or yeah, last week was the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And during that meeting, a large uh, mega church in California came under scrutiny by the convention because last year they ordained three women to be pastors. More recently, when their pastor announced his retirement, he introduced a married couple that would be replacing him, both of them carrying the title of pastor, teaching pastor, both going to be pastors in the church. Our denomination's statement of faith, our church's statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message states very plainly that the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Nevertheless, this pastor and this church are ordaining women as pastors anyway, and apparently, I guess, think that the denomination should be fine with that. Um, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention gave the pastor of this church about 10 minutes to speak for himself on the floor of the convention in light of all of this uh, that was going on. And uh, he was speaking to messengers from all these churches who were going to be deciding whether or not their church would be disfellowshipped or not. And what happened next was just unbelievable because of instead of offering a defense for ordaining female pastors, he just stood there and listed all of his accomplishments in ministry from over 40 years of ministry. Not the Lord's accomplishments, at least that's not how he put it, his own accomplishments. And it came in the form of a humble brag. I just want to thank the SBC for giving me the opportunity to perform all these impressive acts of ministry. He talked about how Billy Graham started mentoring him when he was a teenager and continued to mentor him for 52 years. He talked about preaching over 120 crusades before he was 20 years old. He said he and his wife could not have built their megachurch to its size and influence without Southern Baptists. He said we baptized over 56,000 people. He said we planted 90 churches in their uh, county alone and then thousands around the world. He said, I, and this is a quote, I have, I have, had, the, I have had the privilege of training 1.1 million pastors. Sorry, friends, that's more than all the seminaries put together. He hardly said anything at all about his open departure from the statement of faith. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know what was in his heart. But it was almost as if he had paraded all the accomplishments as proof that we don't need to worry about these little departures from our little statement of faith. His achievements were so vast and obvious that God's word on qualified pastors shouldn't really bother us at all. That, my friends, is the definition of when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Boasting in yourself and in your own achievements is utterly foolish and it blinds you from seeing yourself as you are and from seeing your God as he is. It's anthropocentric. It's not theocentric. It puts yourself and your works at the center of all things instead of putting God and his works at the center of all things. That kind of pride is insufferable to listen to and it's odious in the sight of God. Because the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And yet none of us are, are above this. 
You don't have to be a self-unaware megachurch pastor to, to fall into this. We're all subject to this at times. If you want God to oppose you, here's how you do it. You let pride and boasting dominate your heart and your speech. If you want to be the center of all things, you will find yourself at absolute loggerheads with God. The Bible says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You don't exalt yourself. You humble yourself. God will exalt at the proper time. You don't exalt yourself. You humble yourself. Get your life in line with reality. God is the center of all things. You are not. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You are not. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. Your heart and your speech should reflect that. Or the Bible says God will oppose you. So, first point here. How do the foolish boast? They boast in themselves. That's how they do it. And Paul wants no part of the false teachers that are doing that. And he wants us to recognize that foolishness for what it is. We don't boast in ourselves and we don't compare ourselves to ourselves trying to show off our qualities over other people's negative qualities. We just don't do that. And we don't accept teachers that do that. We reject that. So how the foolish boast, verse 12. Second thing, how Paul boasts. Everybody look at verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Now remember that Paul's using this apostolic we. So when he says we will not boast, he means I will not boast. And he's talking about when it's appropriate to boast and when it isn't appropriate to boast. He says that he will not, quote, boast beyond limits, which means that there's a kind of boasting that's in bounds and a kind of boasting that's out of bounds. What kind of boasting is, out of, is, is in bounds? Well, he says it there. He says, I will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God assigned to me to reach even to you. You see what he did there? He didn't boast in his own accomplishment. He boasted in what God had done. This wasn't Paul's ministry. This is God's ministry that God graciously called Paul to participate in. You think about Paul's biography. When Paul was Saul the Pharisee, he wasn't looking to follow Christ and to get into Christian ministry when he was on his way to Damascus. He was breathing out threats and looking to arrest and destroy Christians. That's what he was looking to do. And instead, the Lord Jesus intercepted him, appeared to him, and arrested him. And the Lord gave Paul an assignment to be his chosen vessel to, pay, to bear Christ's name before the Gentiles. And eventually, that same Christ appears to Paul in the Macedonian vision and calls him to travel further to the west, leading him eventually to come to Corinth, where Paul brought the gospel to those people for the very first time. So think about this. God's assignment brought Paul and the gospel to Corinth. Saul the Pharisee would never have brought himself to that. 
You know, so, so can Paul boast in himself and his assignment? No, he can boast in God who gave him the assignment. So Paul's not going to boast beyond the field of ministry that God had given him and in which God himself was working powerfully through Paul. He's just not going to boast beyond <clears throat> limits. Look at verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Meaning, I was the first to come all the way to you with the gospel. When he says that he's not overextending himself, he means that he's not boasting beyond proper limits by speaking of his ministry among the Corinthians. It's not as if Corinth wasn't a part of the area that God assigned to him. It most certainly was a part of the area that God had assigned to him. And Paul is not boasting beyond limits by reminding them of what God had done through Paul among the Corinthians. So Paul's just fine in boasting in what God has done, but guess what he won't do? Look at verse 15. We do not boast, or I do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but my hope is that as your faith increases, my area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Paul's saying that he's not going to take credit for somebody else's ministry. He's not going to boast as if the labors of others were his own labors. You ever do something and then somebody else take credit for it? Kind of grinds your gears up, doesn't it? Guess what? You got false teachers coming into Corinth. They're kind of taking up, putting down Paul, saying we're better than Paul, basically taking credit for the ministry. Paul's saying he's not going to do that. He's not going to act that way. He's also saying he wants his gospel influence to grow in the field that God has assigned to him to work in, and that field includes the Corinthian church. He wants his influence there to grow so that, everybody look at verse 16, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. So again, he doesn't want to come behind someone else and try to take credit for their ministry. Rather, he wants to launch out launch out beyond the Corinthians to preach Christ in places where Christ has never been named. That's his whole aim. He doesn't want to come and till up soil somebody else has already tilled up. Uh, Romans chapter 15 and verse 15, uh, 20, Paul says this, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build on another man's foundation. David Garland puts it this way. He says, Paul does not boast in another's labors because he does not work in fields already tilled by others. His opponents, however, have no qualms about building on another's foundation or claiming an equal, if not greater, authority over a congregation that they did not found. Meaning, Paul's not going to come in after somebody and take credit for their work or try to say, I have more, you know, take over for them. He says, but these other false teachers, that's what they're doing with him. They're doing this, this very thing. And this is the problem. Paul does not boast in the labors of others, but his opponents in Corinth do. Paul is totally fine with faithful gospel preachers coming behind him and building on the foundation that he laid. We know that's the case because we remember how Paul supported Apollos' preaching ministry 
in Corinth after Paul left Corinth. You remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. In other words, Paul viewed his ministry in Apollos' ministry, this guy who came behind him, as complementary, not as contradictory. So Paul's not, you know, upset about somebody coming in and ministering along behind him. But that's not how he views these opponents' ministry in Corinth. These guys he's talking about now are not like Apollos. These opponents are raising up speculations against the knowledge of God and are leading God's people away from devotion to Christ. And they're gaining a foothold by challenging Paul's authority. And Paul is having none of that. That is not how faithful gospel preachers behave. They don't come in and denigrate the faithful ministry of those who came before. They don't use the gospel to advance their own reputation and fame. Faithful gospel preachers bring the gospel to advance God's reputation and fame. That's the difference. When I was in college, um, I think I told you guys this. I may have told you guys this story before, but when I was in college, I, I declared a history major sometime after I realized I felt called to, to ministry. And I had a meeting really early on with one of the deans in my school. Um, and he was asking me about what I was planning to do after school, so trying to help me with my program. And I told him that I was going into Christian ministry. And he told me... Um, and when he heard that, that I wanted to go you know, possibly to seminary and, and to preach, he told me that he had been studying New Testament Greek for about 10 years with a retired Presbyterian minister who lived there in town. And he told me the guy wasn't employed by the university at all, but he said that he would bring that guy in on an adjunct basis to teach me New Testament Greek and that I could get my foreign language credit. I'm just at a state school. It's not some private school. This is a state school in Louisiana. And he said, if I wanted to do this, I could start learning Greek now. And I was like, absolutely. And so not long after that, I get connected with this retired Presbyterian minister who's in his 70s. And he was something else. Um, his name was Reverend Jim Lipscomb. At the time, I thought he was ancient. 70 doesn't, look, 70 doesn't look as old to me as now. Uh, but uh, at the time, I thought he was ancient. And he had gone to seminary with Francis Schaeffer. It was just unbelievable. But for two quarters, we were on the quarter system, not semesters. But for two quarters, me and one other guy um, went through J. Gresham Machen's New Testament Greek grammar. We learned Greek. And then after those first two quarters, my friend quit, and I kept on for two more semester, semesters and got all the credit I could with the guy. And all we did was read the New Testament and talk about the New Testament, which is really strange at a state school that this was happening. But it was me and him sitting alone in a room, translating the Bible and talking about the Bible. And there was no question about what we'd be doing on any given day. We were reading the Bible. That was it. All of this happened right after I was emerging from this enormous crisis of faith during my sophomore year. And it turned out that so many of the questions that I had about the Bible and about the historical foundations of our faith, Reverend Lipscomb knew all the answers to those questions. He thought about those things. I'd never known a preacher who had actually thought about these issues that I was having. And here was a guy and it was just me and him one-on-one. -on -one. He wasn't afraid of any question 
And I'm telling you, the Lord used him in a mighty way to rebuild what had been torn down during my dark night of the soul. After I got all the credit I could with him through the university, I didn't want to stop, and he didn't want to stop. So he would just have me over to his house every week to read from the Greek New Testament. And we'd just sit out on his back porch, and we'd dive right in. And it was, it was incredible. By the time I finally graduated, there was no telling how many hours he poured into me, teaching me how to read the, the Greek Bible. And guess what? He never charged me or the university one thin dime. He didn't want the money. He didn't want the credit. His joy was totally in the word of God and in teaching somebody else to have that same joy that he had. So I don't know how many hours I spent with Reverend Lipscomb, but what I do remember is what he had inscribed on his mantle. And it was Psalm 97.1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. And that's just how he lived. The Lord reigns. Not Reverend Lipscomb reigns, the Lord reigns. We kept in touch after I graduated, about 11 years after I left. His wife contacted me and told me that he had died. And I came back to Ruston, Louisiana to see him one last time, went into the service, walked to the front, looked in the casket, and just said, thank you. And I thanked the Lord. And there was no big, <laughs> you know, recognition of him. It was a small church in a small town of a guy who was faithful. Faithful gospel preachers don't do what they do for the money or for the acclaim. They don't do it for the platform or for any glory. They do it because they love Christ and they love his word. And his word burns like a fire in their bones. And they can't hold it in. You should pay faithful gospel preachers because a laborer is worthy of his wages. But here's the thing. You don't actually have to pay them. Because if you don't pay them, they'll do it anyway. They're going to preach Christ whether there's a paycheck or not. You know what kind of life honors the Lord? It's the kind of life that is like that, Reverend Lipscomb. It's not the life that humble brags or boasts or self-aggrandizes. It's not the life constantly looking for a bigger and wider platform. It's the life that looks away from self and fixes its eyes on the Lord Jesus on the majesty and the beauty of the Lord and never loses sight of that vision. You and I were not made to make much of ourselves. And the more we seek that, the more unsatisfied we are going to be with this life. You and I were made to make much of him. As long as you are making much of yourself, your life is going to be small. If you want to feel the fulfillment of doing what you were made to do, you have to look away from yourself and make much of Christ. How do the foolish boast? They boast in themselves. How does Paul boast? He boasts in God. And that brings us to our final thing, how we should boast. It's obvious, right? Look at verse 17. 
let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Many of you will notice that that verse 17 is a quotation, kind of a free quotation, hearkening back to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, which was our Old Testament reading today. It says this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. It means let not the wise man boast in himself, right? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. So there it is. The difference between good boasting and bad boasting is really simple. What distinguishes boasting beyond limits and boasting within limits? It's the object of your boasting. That's it. If you boast in yourself, you're sinning. If you boast in the Lord, you're worshiping. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 17, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as Illyricum, I fully preach the gospel of Christ. You think Paul's boasting in himself in that? No. Paul has found reason to boast in things pertaining to God. Paul boasts in the Lord. Paul didn't preach himself. He didn't boast in himself. He preached Christ and he boasted in Christ. He didn't run around like the sham philosophers building up himself, denigrating everybody else. He resolved to know nothing in his ministry except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that made all the difference. That's where all the power came from. So look at verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What do you think you're really accomplishing when you boast about yourself? You're really not accomplishing anything. This is, verse 18 is Paul's way of saying to the Corinthians, who are you going to listen to and to believe? Are you going to listen to false teachers who are constantly puffing themselves up, bringing letters of commendation, denigrating the apostles of the Lord Jesus? Or are you going to actually listen to the one that Jesus sent to you? The one whom the Lord commends to you. Because guess what? Between Paul and the false teachers, there's only one of them that was sent by the Lord Jesus. And that person is Paul. Don't listen to people who commend themselves. Listen to people whom the Lord commends. How do you know the difference between the one the Lord commends and the ones that are commending themselves? Well, the people whom the Lord commends, they're not making much of themselves. They live and breathe and work to make much of Christ. That's how you know them. That's the one the Lord commends. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 5, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. You know what he means by that? He means that, look, I'm not aware of anything right now that I'm guilty of. And um, I'm not aware. My conscience is not condemning me right now. That's what he's saying. But he says, my own self-evaluation of myself doesn't justify me. I'm not acquitted by my own self-evaluation. I'm not the judge of myself. If you're not the judge of yourself, you can't really commend yourself. He says, it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, then in that day, each one will receive his commendation from God. We can't be living for the praise of men. And we can't be living for our own boasting commendations of ourselves. We just can't do that. How do the foolish boast? They boast in themselves. How does Paul boast? He boasts in God. Which means, how are we supposed to boast? We boast in God. Never in ourselves. So what does this mean for us? Let me give you two quick applications. If all this is true, it means that you and I need to learn how to recognize pride and boasting in ourselves. And we need to turn from it. It's, it's hard because pride is this, we are spring-loaded for pride. We are spring-loaded for self-regard. It's there and we hardly realize it. It's coming out of our mouths before we know it. But we've got to start looking for it and killing it. When you relate to other people, this is an example, but when you're relating to other people, talking to other people, do you have a genuine interest in them? Or do you view every relationship as a way to platform yourself and to put yourself at the center of all things? Are you, are you able to be genuinely interested in other people? What's going on in their life? What, what their hurts are? What their feelings are? If you don't have a capacity for that, that is a sign that pride has taken too much of a hold in your heart. And it's probably dominating the way that you speak about yourself. Do you view conversations with others as opportunities to talk about yourself? Test yourself here. What you talk about reveals what you are interested in. Does pride drive you toward making yourself the center of your relating to others? Or does love drive you to listen to and to care for the needs of others? If you can't look away from yourself, you'll never be able to look at God. And you'll never be able to do what God tells you to do, which is to treat others as better than yourself. You'll never be able to do that if you're constantly just in the throes of pride, which is expressed in boasting. So you got to learn how to recognize that, and then you've got to turn from it. Second thing, learn how to spot, be discerning about self-aggrandizement in those who claim to be ministers of the word. 
Now, I'm saying this not because I want you to be hypercritical. <laughs> That's not going to help you, okay? We, we need to be thankful for the word, but we do need to be deserting, okay? Don't fall for charisma and eloquence as the marks of a faithful ministry. Now, sometimes faithful ministers have charisma and eloquence. That's fine. But charisma and eloquence alone don't make a faithful ministry. Don't fall for those who are essentially entertainers trying to expand their platform and market share. Don't fall for that. Look for and attend to those who would minister the word for nothing if it came to it. Look for the ones who aren't always making much of themselves, but who live to make much of the Lord Jesus. If you've got self-aggrandizing, boasting in accomplishments, that's a problem. If you've got looking away from yourself, pointing to what the Lord Jesus has done through his grace in your life, that's, that's good. You've got to learn to know the difference here. And a lot of people can't tell the difference. Because a lot of guys who self-aggrandize and whose ministry is really just a ministry of themselves, they can gather a crowd. They can absolutely gather a crowd. But what you win people with is what you're winning them to. And you may not be winning to Jesus when you do that. So you need to be discerning about that. Let me say finally, for those of you here who are not Christians, uh, we want you to know what we believe is most, the most fundamental truth about life. And that is this that we are all sinners. We were created by God, but we are sinners. And because of our sin, we've been separated from him such that we deserve an eternity in hell. But the Bible says that God sent his own son into the world to live a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, and then to die the death that we deserved. And he died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago he paid the penalty for our sins. And then three days later, God rose him from the dead. And he is right now exalted and seated at the right hand of God. And because he is raised from the dead, God can offer us resurrection from the dead, meaning he can offer us eternal life. The way that we get connected to this forgiveness of sins and eternal life is not by anything we do. We can't earn what God has given to us. If we could earn it, we could boast about it. But the Bible says, where is boasting? There is no boasting. We have no grounds for boasting. Because everything that needed to be done to save us, God did for us by sending his son Jesus. And the way we get connected to him is not by doing good works or coming to church a lot. The way we get connected to him is by believing in him. Trusting in him, looking away from ourselves, repenting of our sin, and trusting in him alone. If you do that, the Bible says, you will be saved. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use your word to sanctify your people and to save sinners. Father, forgive us, all of us, from the smallest child to the guy standing behind the pulpit. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for the ways in which it drives us and moves us and motivates us in ways that sometimes we're not even conscious of. 
Lord, I pray that you would bring the waywardness of our hearts to the surface in a way that we can see it and that we could turn from it. We could take concrete steps, not to boast about ourselves, not to make much of ourselves, but to make much of you and to care for the needs of others. Lord, enable us to do that. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who don't know you, who haven't trusted in you. I pray that they would. I pray that they would be gripped by the message of Jesus, his death and resurrection, that they would believe and be saved. Father, the fact that we have to ask you for these things just shows that we have no grounds for boasting because if you don't do it, it won't get done. So we pray for you to do it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand together. In the strength that God has given, we'll see.
Please join me as we confess the faith. The true Christian faith is this, that we worship one God and Trinity. As we come to this table, I want you to consider the invitation to and the message of this table. The invitation. We believe that Jesus invites all of his disciples partake of this table. His disciples are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, who have been baptized as a believer who are not holding to any known sin, who are a member of good standing of a local church that preaches the same gospel you heard today. If that is you, then you're invited to partake of this table. If that is not you, then please consider what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. The Apostle Paul describes the message of the Lord's Supper this way. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we break the bread, we preach Christ's body broken for us. When we drink the cup, we preach Christ's blood poured out for us. In other words, we eat and drink of this table, we preach the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's stand together.
church is one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to Toil and trivia. 
presence of his glory blameless and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen you're dismissed